electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Steve Weiss owes us. I'm going to put in the ledger. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Melissa Lee. Here's what's ahead. Stocks falling for the second day in a row following a strong start to the week. So is now the time to get back into the market? And what sector could be a big buying opportunity right now? Plus, we're less than 24 hours away from the big September jobs report. Will getting kids back to school full-time get workers back on the job? We turn to Recruiter.com for clues on what to expect tomorrow. And real estate mogul Don Beebles live on how soaring rates are playing out in residential and commercial real estate. We get, begin right now with breaking news on the Fed. Steve Leesman joins us now with the headlines. Hey, Steve. Melissa, hey, uh, Federal Reserve Governor Lisa Cook in her first speech as Federal Reserve Governor saying that ongoing rate hikes will likely be required. In addition to that, a restrictive policy will need to be maintained until there's confidence inflation is coming down uh, towards the Fed's 2% goal. At some point, she says, is it will be appropriate to slow the pace of increases, but that depends on progress regarding inflation. Uh, policy, she says, should be based on inflation data showing it's actually falling rather than forecasts of data. There's a risk high inflation becomes entrenched, she says, and that inflation is stubbornly, unacceptably high and broad-based. Very much on board with the center of the committee on this. Uh, Cook, by the way, joined the Fed in May, hasn't spoken until now. Uh, Inflation declining slower than anticipated, she says, with risk skewed to the upside. There's some easing of inflationary pressure uh, and some easing of supply bottlenecks, but good and goods prices have been coming down. But service prices, she says, are going up. So any concern at all that this Biden appointee was somehow not going to be on board with the inflation fight? Um, I think we can put those to rest with this speech, Melissa. Steve, can you put these comments into context uh, in terms of other Fed speak that we've gotten recently, uh, especially in light of the comments from Professor Jeremy Siegel yesterday saying effectively that the Fed seems to be a monolith of thought when it comes to how they're going to fight inflation and how that in and of itself is troubling to not hear many dissenting voices out there saying, you know what, maybe it's time to pause. Maybe it's worthwhile to, to wait and see what we have right now. Um, she would not be uh, on board with what Professor Siegel is saying. Uh, she seems to be on board with what everybody else is saying. We had Kashkari on uh, this morning talking, and we had uh, Bostic on yesterday. All of those are, uh, all three of those are, seem, uh, well, Bostic and Kashkari seem on board with bringing the rate up towards that four, four and a half percent range. There is talk by Bostic of a pause, but not until they get to what they consider to be an appropriately restrictive rate, Melissa. All right. Steve, thanks. Steve Leisman. Well, the market's been trading in a tight range ahead of tomorrow's crucial jobs report. Let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange with more. After such a big start to the month, Bob, stocks had every every reason to want to sell off before the jobs report. Yeah, and it, it hasn't, but it's a sort of an indeterminate day. There's no clear direction right now. We were positive in the 
early on. And what you want to look for, Melissa, is signs that the risk-on trades are continuing. What's risk-on? Well, it's very simple. To me, it's metal stocks. They had done really well in the start of the week. Transports were at new lows last week. Uh, they really weren't going anywhere. You want to take a look at some of them right now. There's the S&P 500, by the way, uh, down about 20 points. We were positive uh, early on here, but just look at some of the sectors here. Metals were up early on. Uh, they quickly basically flattened out. Transportation stocks were at a new low last week. Uh, the good news is they stopped going down but aren't doing too much today. Semiconductors also stopped going down, but we had two great days of moves up on semiconductor stocks. They started in positive territory, then really didn't go anywhere. And there's uh, ARC, uh, which uh, was positive early on, and is flattish in the middle of the day. There's advanced micro, strong, still up fractionally, but well off of the highs. NVIDIA, uh, some of the oil stocks like Occidental are up. And Material stocks like CF Industries have held up pretty well throughout the day. So overall, uh, this isn't a roaring move like we saw in the last two days, but still pretty good. I was fairly encouraged by the earnings movers today, Melissa. Most of these were big consumer names. So we saw, for example, ConAgra. Uh, they had great earnings. They had big price hikes. Um, they reaffirmed the, guard, the guidance there. That was pretty good overall. Constellation Brands had amazing beer sales. They beat the numbers. The guidance was only fair there. They didn't really hike the guidance much, and I think that's why it's down about 2% there. A little disappointment. McCormick was a really big plus. They had amazing numbers. They reaffirmed their full-year guidance. Uh, they're also relying on big price hikes. So a lot of reliance on price hikes by these consumer names, Melissa. And in my book, simply all three reaffirming their full year guidance is a bit of a win. Remember, a lot of people were expecting companies to lower guidance for the fourth quarter. At least in these three reporters today, that didn't happen. Melissa? Although two of the three are down considerably. Yes. <laughs> so it wasn't enough in this market. They wanted, look, in the case, for example, of Constellation, they wanted them to raise the guidance at this point because they beat so well. Right. And the fact that they only raised it a little bit on the high end and not on the, they didn't raise the low end much, I think it's a little disappointing. But again, remember, we're, people are out there expecting an earnings apocalypse. They're expecting earnings estimates to actually go negative and go in the other direction. To me, reaffirming is a bit of a win given the expectations. Yeah. Bob, thanks. Bob Sani. Yeah. Our next guest says trying to time the Fed is similar to gaming, but if you're a long-term investor, it is a good time to get into the market. He's finding opportunities in cyclicals. Joining us now, Christian Ledoux, the Director of Investments at CapTrust. Christian, great to have you with us. Um, do you think the economy worsens? I'm just wondering in terms of the timing of getting into cyclicals, how early do you want to be when early often in the investing world means wrong? Well, really, your timing should be centered around the Fed. And Gaming the Fed is, is kind of a silly word around that, but we're trying to figure out what are the metrics that the Fed's going to be looking at in the next three months that's going to tell you when the rate cycle is going to come to an end. Mm -hmm. and, and what would, I mean, I would assume that one would be unemployment, and there's growing thinking that we're going to have to see that unemployment rate up to 5% before we can even entertain the idea of a Fed pivot, which would be, I would imagine, a signal to you to start getting into cyclicals. Is that what you're waiting for? That's Absolutely. That's that's exactly what we're looking for is those kind of data points on the on the labor market, but also on some of the key inflation metrics. And you look at the Zillow data on rents and housing, it's already starting to come down. We, we see this level of rates as being restrictive enough already, but we just have to wait for the Fed to realize that it's being restrictive enough and see it in its data. 
So let's talk about some of your picks, Christian, because they're interesting to me. Um, Nucor, you want to get into Nucor now after all that we said, that things are going to get worse before they get better. You want to be in Nucor, especially when it's not just the United States picture, even though it's a United States producer. It's also what's going on in China. That's right. And yeah, you're not going to be able to time when China is going to reopen exactly. But uh, t- take a look at the estimates on Nucor. Uh, the consensus is already looking at more than a 50% decline in earnings next year. I think that's probably enough. But even if it isn't, it's trading at less than 10 times that number. And if it goes to 15 times, that's still a, an acceptable price level for a stock like this. Interpublic, an advertising name. We've heard um, so much about companies scaling back. Uh, when it comes to hiring, when it comes to expenses, when it comes to advertising specifically, and yet you like this one, why? Well, this one out of the group has a little bit more of the healthcare exposure, which is less cyclical. Uh, But I I think the numbers are already starting to reflect that advertising slowdown that you mentioned. And this is a company that's probably going to be in in actions within their, their business early on in the process. So when advertising does come back, the advertising supporters like Interpublic are going to get the activity first. Um, your last pick uh, is also an interesting one, Acuity Brands. But I want to go back to the thinking of, of what is priced in, because I think that is the key for investors right now. What is, in fact, priced in? And specifically for Nucor, you said we're expecting, or what was it, that, that earnings growth would be down 50 percent, earnings would be down 50 percent for next year. That implies that that original level was correct. If analysts were too bullish to begin with, then being down 50 percent doesn't really mean much to me, uh, Christian. So I'm wondering how you sort of sort those things out, because, for instance, like when you take a stock and you say a stock is down 90 percent, maybe it should have never been at that level to begin with. So being down 90 percent is neither here nor there when you're when you're actually deciding whether to put money into it. Actually, the, the estimates haven't been cut. The, the actual level of earnings for 2023 are likely going to be down more than 50% from the 2022 levels. Yes, 2022 earnings were inflated by some shortages in the industry and, of course, some rapid recovery from COVID. But uh, 2023 is going to be a more normal year. Mm-hmm. And if you can build from there into 2024 having some growth, I think this is a great time to own the stock. All right. Thanks for walking us through that. Uh, Christian, good to see you. Christian Ledoux with Cap Trust. I see you, Melissa. Well, the market is in wait and see mode ahead of tomorrow's big jobs report. Our next guest has unique insight into what we might expect. According to Recruiter.com, for the first time ever, none of the roles recruiters worked on filling in September were new positions, a sign that companies are not expanding. And IT and software engineering were the hardest hit. The latter, which saw job openings fall 21% from the previous month, And as hiring slows and economic conditions worsen, companies are shifting to lower wage positions. September job openings paying between $15,000 and $40,000 a year jumped a staggering 82%. To make sense of it all, let's bring in Recruiter.com CEO Evan Sohn. Evan, great to have you with us. So distill all of that for us. What does the jobs picture look like right now? Because the headline numbers, it seems like the jobs market is, is fairly strong still. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, the great hesitation, right? Companies realize uh, the expense they had in getting these employees. Uh, and we predicted earlier this year on CNBC that the U.S. economy would spend $50 billion more in 22 over 2019 in talent acquisition. And I think companies are hesitating to lay off more workers knowing that they might have to bring them back. Yet, as you just mentioned, we saw this huge surge in the sub-$40,000 
uh, salary buckets. So uh, there is recruiting going on, there is hiring going on, and those uh, the, the, those recruiters are being shifted towards the lower uh, salaried workers, leaving the uh, higher ones either in this hesitation mode of what we do with them. Um, and again, you know, employees are quitting. We saw more people quit in August of 22 than they did in July of 22. So employees are quitting. Uh, I think in the survey, over 50% of the candidates uh, reported by the recruiters had over two jobs in the past year. Uh, so employees are quitting. Companies need to hire and fill those roles. But as you mentioned, not one recruiter reported that 100% of the roles that they were working on were new roles. So we call those backfills. So the roles left open by someone quitting is still taking a, a significant share of that market. When do you think that pendulum swings? I mean, for an employee to have two jobs over the course of one year, if I were uh, somebody who's hiring, I wouldn't want to hire that person. <laughs> it shows that they're just absolutely mercenary and have no loyalty and I can't depend on them. Does that pendulum, though, shift? I mean, if we're all talking about the Fed raising rates to the point of pain in the labor market, eventually the pendulum does have to switch. Eventually, people don't have that luxury to demand working from home, to demand a quality of life issue and to be quitting jobs two times a year. You know, um, I would say that good talent is always in real demand. Uh, so the talent and whether, depending on the company, talent could be a factory worker, or talent could be a restaurant worker, or talent could be a Java developer, good talent is always going to be in demand. And good talent can actually uh, make determinations on what sort of culture and work-life balance they want to have. And the companies, if they want to fill those roles to align with their culture, uh, they're going to have to find those employees that actually also align with those roles. But I will say, you know, I think five years ago, if you if you saw an employee leave uh, within six months, you'd say, gee, I, I questioned that employee. And now if they say, gee, it just wasn't a good culture fit, I didn't like the mission that the company was on, you might actually look at that employee a little bit differently today than you did five years ago. So in terms of what you do, Evan, I'm, I'm just curious, how do you look through a jobs report? Like, for instance, tomorrow morning, when you read through that jobs report, what will you be focusing in on to tell you what you are going to see? Or is it the is it the reverse? Does it confirm things that you suspected? I mean, how do you use that data, if at all? Yeah, we, we usually use it to go, gee, we were right here. Uh, we look at the swings that we're seeing and we look for the data to accompany those swings. But I'll, I'll tell you, the numbers that we typically look at is the jolt report. Uh, how many people are quitting? How many people are getting hired? Because uh, that really gives you the health of the overall job economy. Uh, not necessarily new jobs, uh, but who's quitting uh, and who's hiring and how many of those in different sectors. Uh, and when we're seeing more and more people quit, it also means more, more, more and more people are getting hired. And that's actually very good uh, in this new economy. You know, we predicted earlier in the year that the great uh, resignation would be replaced by job mobility. And we're really seeing that. People are still being more mobile. They're leaving companies. Uh, uh, candidate sentiment, though, ticked down uh, one bit uh, from 3.7 to 3.6 uh, month over month, it's still really high. Uh, it still is a, a good candidate's marketplace. Uh, we saw salaries grow up, go up. We saw applications to jobs actually go up also. So more people are applying to a fewer number of jobs. Um, but it really is this hesitation that we're living in now as companies are really figuring out, you know, gee, what's going to be next for them with the, with the looming recession. Evan, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank Evan, you. Evan Sohn of Recruiter.com. Coming up, the uh
He called the summer drop in energy prices at the end of May right here on the exchange. Up next, Carter Worth's latest call in the sector and why both long-term investors and short-term traders should pay attention with crude on pace for its best week since March. Plus, apartment demand turning negative last quarter for the first time in at least 30 years. We'll take a look at the impact rising rates are having on renters and check in with real estate mogul Don Peebles about what he is seeing at his properties. And as we head to break, take a check on the markets. As Pisani had said, we're in the sort of wait-and-see mode. We've got the 10-year yield uh, pretty strong, 3.8%. We've got the S&P 500 down by just about four-tenths of a percent. The exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Oil and energy stocks surging on the back of those controversial OPEC Plus production cuts. The energy ETF ticker XLE on pace for its best week since November of 13 percent. Our next guest checked the charts and says now is the time to get long and stay there. And it's worth considering, given he's nailed his energy calls all summer long, including calling the summer drop. Let's welcome in Carter Worth, founder and CEO of Worth Charting. Carter, good to see you uh, earlier in the day than usual. What are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, obviously, what's so interesting, of course, is that quite often, despite what we all want to believe that we can figure it out fundamentally, and there's a lot to be said for doing that, sometimes it is just about trend lines. The XLE, this, the ETF that matches the entire energy sector, literally touched down to the penny to a trend line that's been in effect for two years and bounced perfectly. And the question is, did it bounce because of the trend line or did it bounce because OPEC said what they're going to say? But why is it so often, and this is the mystery, that those two things align, a fundamental juncture and a technical juncture? But the important thing is that energy shares uh, act so well relative to the market. Look at that chart. Now, uh, one could say uh, those lines are manipulated. They're not. Every single time the sector has touched down to that uptrend line. In effect, for almost two years, it has bounced. And indeed, now you can see the converging line from the peak. And so short term, up 19% from the absolute low XLE, I would write calls. If you're in a longer term frame of mind, the thought, what's not to like, comes to mind. What are you seeing for crude oil? And what is the correlation there? Is there a base level price at which, you know, you start getting worried about the charts, Carter? 
I mean, crude is acting uh, sort of in line day to day, week over week with the energy shares, but let's just put it in context. We know that it's a six month decline, right? That peak was March 7th, $130 a barrel. And we touched the low of 76.50 just last week. But, but the thing is this, that when you had that sort of blow off Ukraine related event, we went up essentially $40 a barrel from 90 to 130 in six sessions. And that marked an important top. And just as crude was love then, it really was, it was hated just days ago. Um, and I think when you get the extreme readings in sentiment, you want to take the other side. And so from my thinking, crude is fine here and uh, you want to be uh, long the space. And XLE, Carter, I mean, obviously that's that's integrated big oil companies. But do the charts look similar when when you take a look at oil services or when you take a look at some of the more nat gas sort of names? Well, some are considerably better. So versus XLE, which, of course, is the aggregate, and it's dominated by Exxon and Chevron, almost half the weight at Inconico. But something like an LNG, for instance, is better than XLE, while the, the drillers are not as good. I think it's important to say this, that as a sector goes, and we know this, it's only 22 names. It's only about 3% of the S&P on any given day. And, of course, the total market cap of the energy sector at $1.6 trillion is around where Microsoft is at $1.8 Jeff Mills had LNG as his final trade last night, Carter. I know you watch the show every night. Um, and I was shocked to look at the chart and see the returns for the year. I mean, we know energy has been a great uh, returner, but LNG is, is just a that chart is amazing. Uh, what, what's your take? I think that, yeah, that's right. It's sort of north by northeast, higher, steadily higher, ever uh, ascending and never gets parabolic. It is as orderly as something like United Healthcare. You can you can see it. I, I'm with him on that LNG. Uh, stay long, be long. All right, Carter, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Coming up, Peloton announcing another round of layoffs, but the CEO says the restructuring is done. And now they're focused on growth. Will the company be able to make the pivot now that its market cap is lower than its annual revenue? The exchange is back right after this. And now, CNBC Trend Tracker. podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a check on the markets right now on this Jobs Day Eve. Uh, we've got not too much moving markets. We're pretty much right in the middle of the, where we were the entire day in terms of range. The S&P 500 is at 37.67, down by just about four-tenths of a percent. We're about 30 points off the high, 20 points off the lows of the day. NASDAQ is almost flat there, down by 10 points, uh, 11,137. Real estate utilities, they are dragging the markets lower, while energy and communication services are the only groups in the green. And speaking of energy, Barclays is upgrading Transocean to a buy, saying the stock can jump nearly 70 percent from here as the company works to fill the looming oil supply gap. The shares are up 30 percent this week alone, their best since July. Goldman Sachs, meantime, upgrading Pinterest and take two to a buy rating. The firm says it sees upside to revenue growth for Pinterest. Whereas for take two, the analyst believes that macro headwinds are already priced into the stock. Both names are trading higher today, but still down around 30 percent since January. Now let's get to Bertha Coombs for a CNBC News update. Bertha. Hey, thanks, Melissa. Here's what's happening at this hour. Four members of a Central California family, including an eight-month-old, who were kidnapped on Monday, have now been found dead. The 48-year-old suspect is in custody in connection with the case. He is talking to investigators from a hospital after a suicide attempt. For full details on that investigation and what evidence authorities are collecting, tune in to the news tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Actor Kevin Spacey appearing in a Manhattan federal court Thursday morning. His trial set to begin nearly five years after Anthony Rapp accused Spacey of sexual abuse. Rapp is suing Spacey for $40 million over an alleged encounter in Spacey's home in 1986 when Rapp was just 14. The trial marks the first time Spacey will defend himself in front of a jury. The January 6th committee is scheduling its next hearing for Thursday, October 13th. It will likely be the last hearing before the midterm elections. Melissa, back over to you. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, rising rates putting pressure on one real estate segment in particular. And our next guest says that is presenting some significant opportunities. Real estate developer Don Peebles joins us live on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. Welcome back. It's not just the housing market that's cooling off. Apartment demand went negative last quarter for the first time in 30 years. Diana Olick joins us now with what is behind this plunge. Diana. Well, Melissa, I hate to say it's the economy, but it is weaker consumer confidence in the economy, at least according to economists at RealPage, which just reported that apartment demand has, quote, evaporated in much of the country due to what appears to be a freeze in new household formation. The third quarter is historically a seasonally strong leasing period, but demand actually fell this year. And that's the first time RealPage has seen a third quarter drop in the 30 years it's been tracking this. As a result, asking rents, which were already easing earlier this year, fell month to month in September for the first time since the end of 2020. Vacancies for apartments are still very low given overall strong demand, but that rate did pop up one percentage point to 4.1%. Now, while REIT stocks were already getting hammered due to higher interest rates, Another red flag for apartment REITs is that there's currently a record number of new apartment units under construction because there had been, even pre-pandemic, an apartment shortage. So we're going new supply and weaker demand together, not a great mix. Higher rents may also be playing a role, but incomes and rent payments have actually improved in recent months, with incomes among new lease signers up 13% year over year, 
Demand also softened at all price points, and that's why it may just be, again, Melissa, that lower consumer confidence. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. While apartment demand dropped last quarter, Nexca says the rental market will hold up as mortgage rates climb and that luxury home buyers, the builders, and the brokers will get hit the hardest. Let's bring in Don Peebles, the chairman and CEO of Peebles Corporation, a privately held real estate investment and development company with projects in many major cities, including New York, Miami, and Los Angeles. Don, pleasure to speak with you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Melissa. Good to see you. You know what is so amazing about what has gone on in terms of the environment is that rates have risen so incredibly fast. And I'm wondering if you think that has worked its way in terms of the pain to be felt across the real estate sector yet, or if there is another shoe to drop here as we are, uh, you know, digesting these much higher rates. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, the, the market is actually kind of in shock because the rate movement has been so fast. So we went, say, a year or so ago to essentially free money at, at 2% for, for super prime buyers or borrowers uh, to now 5 and 6%. And real rates um, for mortgages are running between 55 and 6%. And so the monthly mortgage payments for the median household income buyer is um, up at least 100%. In some instances, about 150%. Uh, so that's putting a chill on new housing purchases. And I think that's going to go for a while because I think rates are going to continue to move. However, I think the apartment sector is a very different story. And, uh, and I think um, right now, um, I think people are just taking their breath. But as fewer people can afford to buy or they're not feeling it's a prudent decision, you'll see more people rent. So as a developer, Don, how have you changed uh, your view of, of where you invest and how you invest given the rising rate environment? How has it changed from, say, even, you know, even six months ago, the rate environment was a completely different one? Well, I think we were looking at um, for, to develop in several of our projects around the country for sale projects. And we think that for sale projects that would get delivered, say, in the next two to three years will be problematic. I think five years or so out, um, that'll be a different story. And I'm talking about condominium sales. And so I think those typical condo buyers in many of the markets are now moving in uh, to rentals. I mean, you got to take Miami, for example. Miami is it, it, for the average renter they're going to need to spend more than 50% of their income on housing. I mean, wow. that is unsustainable. And so what has happened now is people are looking at more creative ways to how they live or um, how new housing formation, but also looking at other markets now. Because, you know, success um, to a certain degree breeds more success. But at a certain point thereafter, it starts creating a place where it's very difficult for businesses to operate. And I think Miami is getting to that place right now where we're going to have to pay a lot people a lot more money in order to be able to live in Miami. And so I think other places around the Sun Belt, like Texas, um, Arizona, um, and Tennessee are going to continue to do well. Charlotte, North Carolina is a big sleeper, I believe. And I think they're going to do well on the rental side, um, very much so. Something really caught my ear, Don, in terms of what you said, and that is the for sale projects that you see, you know, that we're going to be delivering in two, three years. That could be a problem, but five years should be okay. Does that, that mean that you think that the economy is going to be in, in a tough situation for the next two to three years or so? Things won't get yes. better until five years from now? That's a long time. Uh, well, I think, I, mean, I, I started my career in 1979, and interest rates at that point were 20%. And the Fed was trying to control inflation with raising interest rates. And the market was so resilient that it kept going and the economy kept going. And then with these interest rates, and then you add it to that 
an energy crisis. There was an oil embargo by OPEC against the United States. And now what we have, of course, is uh, very rapidly increasing energy costs. So my concern is that we're in for not a soft landing, but a crash landing. Wow. And, uh, and I think that what that means is that people are going to be priced out of the housing market for quite some time. We're going to see values decline in most markets, especially the ones that have run up and that have bad fundamentals to begin with. Um, I think we'll see those markets decline very rapidly. And I wouldn't be surprised to see housing prices in some of the key markets like, say, L.A., pull back you know, 15 to 20 percent in the next 18 months. Crash landing. And that's crash landing for the economy at large, not just the real estate industry? Or does the real estate industry feel it even worse? I think the real estate industry and the economy, I think the real estate industry feels it worse. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have an economy where we're not going, I mean, you're already seeing the dynamics change in terms of employer-employee relationships. And now it's an employer market in many places, and it will continue to be that way. People are, the government's going to have to stop paying people not to work. Um, that has been one of the biggest challenges. And also the housing market, Interest rates were too low for a long time. They should have moved interest. The Fed should have moved interest rates a couple years ago, slowly. And uh, and what has happened is that all these buyers were looking at it as free money because it was. And so why not buy? Now money's going to cost. And back in the 1980s, interest rates were at nine, ten, eight percent. When I bought my first home in 1987, I paid nine percent, um, and that was a good deal. So I right. think that once the economy adjusts to some some more higher interest rates. I think we'll see the housing market recover, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, it's like a frog in a, in a boiling pot of water. You throw the frog in and it's a shock. That's sort of the situation we're in as opposed to turning up the heat gradually. And, and please, we're not actually doing that to frogs out there. So don't don't at me at Twitter. Um, Don, I wanted to talk to you about the opportunities you're seeing in the market because you're saying Class B and lower office buildings. They're, they already had high vacancies. They're going to have it even tougher through this tough time. Are you looking to scoop some of these up as opportunities? And, and can you actually, use, you know, turn them around as office uh, properties or would you, you know, reclassify them into some other use? I would reclassify them, mm-hmm. in them into some other use. If you look at what happened, say, downtown Manhattan after, you know, in, in, after the uh, financial crisis and so forth, you saw a lot of office buildings get converted into um, residential I think that these class B and C and, and, and below office buildings are in a very difficult territory now because there's really no demand. And so as the leases roll, they cannot um, renew them at anywhere remotely close to what the leases were before. These buildings were bought or they were renovated based on a set of economics that are very different. Rent rates are much lower um, for that kind of product. And two, interest rates are much higher. So the only way out for those buildings, I believe, in most of the key markets is going to be to look to convert them to, to an alternative use. And that would be residential rentals. Mm. It would be potentially hospitality. Um, but I think there's opportunities in, in that. We are studying some of the markets and paying attention to those markets that we think have you know, a large inventory of that kind of product, because I do think they're going to be given back to the lenders. Just think about it. Blackstone and Heinz in the last two weeks gave office buildings back to their lenders themselves. So that's just the beginning, though. All right. Don, great to get your insights. Thanks so much. Thank you, Melissa. Don Peebles. Still ahead, the deal is on. Well, hopefully. It's been two days since Elon Musk proposed sticking to his original plan to buy Twitter. And while the rumor mill is turning, there has been no word from either side about an agreement. David Faber will join us next with his latest reporting. The Exchange is back in two.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The drama over Twitter continues. Shares lower today and reports circulating that there are still multiple headwinds facing this deal, including a hiccup in financing. Our own David Faber has been reporting on this story. Joins us now with the very latest. David. Yeah, interesting, uh, Melissa. Uh, you know, uh, there's that hiccup in financing. That at least I can fill some blanks in on. Uh, much else is still a mystery at this point in terms of what the two sides are doing because we have been waiting for uh, what we call a joint stipulation to stay the uh, litigation. If you recall, when we were reporting on the letter from Musk two days ago, 48 hours ago, uh, in it he said, I'm going to buy you 5420 just like we agreed to uh, on April 25th of this year, but I need you to, uh, to stop the litigation. And, of course, Twitter said, well, okay, but we're not going to stop the litigation without the absolute 100% assurance that you're really going to buy us. And that's kind of where we are right now. We would have expected this would have been resolved uh, in front of Chancellor McCormick. All we heard from her was yesterday saying, so far, I'm planning for a trial on the 17th of October. Uh, now, we don't expect that's going to happen, um, although Twitter stock has sold off a bit. And it's obviously trading well below 54.20. If, in fact, you were to get a deal very, very soon, as we said on Tuesday, it could close very quickly. Um, but on this question about the financing, at least, you know, I can tell you after numerous conversations with people in a position to, uh, to know, um, it's going to get funded. Uh, the financing should not be in question, at least based on everything I'm hearing. It simply shouldn't be. Um, there is no plan at Morgan Stanley or anywhere else to not fund this if they get asked to. Uh, will they invoke their 15-day Marketing period? Yeah, they may do that. Uh, unclear. That's what we're looking at. And by the way, some have been speculating on this because the banks are going to take a hit on it. It may end up not being as bad a hit as the banks have financed the Citrix buyout have taken, but it will be uh, a hit given the change, significant change in interest rates since they first signed on to that $13 billion uh, financing. But it's not in question here, at least based on everything that I have heard. What is on qu in question Melissa is exactly what's going on and when we're going to get something uh, that we can actually report on, that investors can act on, that says, okay, they have now got it in writing, everything that has to happen, and then making that happen. And so we're kind of still waiting. And in the meantime, nobody's filed a stay on the trial. So that's no. set to proceed. So even if Elon Musk, even if the conspiracy theorists had it right, David, in, in, in that Elon Musk did this because he didn't want to be deposed because who knows what could be turned up in a deposition because he could be asked about anything in theory. It, this doesn't That's solve true. the problem. No, they're going to solve the problem. The problem <laughs> is simply that for whatever reason, you know, and you listen, you can't blame Twitter for being nervous. We talked about them, yeah. uh, talked about this on Tuesday, uh, you know, for wanting everything in writing. We're not going to set aside the litigation. At the same time, Musk could just buy the company, he'd own it, and then he could stop the litigation. I mean, uh, expectations are we will still get there without it. Uh, but, but again, it is kind of curious that we've been waiting here for two days. And your point on the deposition is an important one. The best we can all come up with is he really doesn't want to be deposed. You know, is it because of deleted texts over signal? Is it for any number of other reasons, ones you raise? He can be asked about anything. Uh, it was delayed. It was originally scheduled for today and tomorrow. Again, 
stand by. We'll see. I mean, yeah. it, you know, any minute we could learn something or we could be sitting here, uh, Melissa, tomorrow asking the same questions. I wish I had more. Waiting, waiting. David, thank you for being so patient. <laughs> David sure. Faber. Up next, six more months. That's how long CEO Barry McCarthy is giving Peloton to turn itself around. Can they do it? And if the growth strategy fails, who could be on the short list of buyers? We'll discuss this after this quick break and be sure to tune into Closing Bell overtime today. Scott Guggenheim, Scott Miner will join Scott Waffner at 4 p.m. Do not miss that. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Peloton announcing yet another round of job cuts. It's fourth so far this year. The fitness company will eliminate another 500 jobs or roughly 12 percent of its remaining workforce. And according to The Wall Street Journal, Peloton CEO Barry McCarthy said he will give the turnaround only six more months. If that doesn't pan out, McCarthy said Peloton will no longer be a viable solo company. So if he can't stand alone, who could stand to buy it? Joining us now with some ideas is Dan Primack, the business editor, editor at Axios. Dan, great to have you with us. What what could be in store for Peloton? Well, let's start with that six months thing, right? Uh, you know, folks inside of Peloton are saying to me, it's not so much that McCarthy is saying we've only got six months and the house is on fire, but more six months would be one year after he took over from the founder, John Foley. He seems to believe the turnaround is going to work, but in six months, you'll know for sure, because that's the period. But he has said that he thinks things are on target, despite obviously the huge layoffs today, which are really his first major layoffs that weren't related to something strategic. Earlier ones were about manufacturing, which was a strategic strategic change. Uh, there was some stuff with, in terms of retail as well. Uh, but going forward, Peloton is a very interesting acquisition target for lots of companies, particularly both in big tech and in fitness, that don't have anything like it. Big tech like whom? Apple? Uh, Apple, absolutely. There's always been talk about how Peloton wanted to kind of be the Apple of fitness. One problem, though, is that Peloton's actual technology, its tablets, run on Android, which is why Google would seem to make more sense. Also, because Apple typically doesn't do big acquisitions. There have been a few, but it's not in its DNA. Google, if it could, if it was willing to, to suffer the possible antitrust look at it, Google would make a lot more sense, even though, again, antitrust and also they've had some hits and misses, more misses when it's come to health. What, what is this company? I mean, if Barry McCarthy were to go out and, and market itself to other companies or, or PE firms, what would it say it is? It, it's a subscription-based service. It's a technology company. It's got the hardware aspect to it. But what, what do you think is, is the primary you know, raison d'etre for, for Peloton at this point? I, I think he'd argue it's still that it's a media company, which is what Foley would have argued mostly before him, particularly with when you look at some of the stuff McCarthy has done. He's gotten rid, even though obviously you can still buy Peloton bikes or treadmills or rowing machines, hardware, as you say, and, and the tablets that go on them. He has gotten rid of a lot of the back end that Peloton owned. They were doing their own manufacturing. They're not anymore. That's now third party. They were doing their own delivery. So they were doing their own logistics. They're not anymore. That's also third party. So what he'd really argue is they are a subscription based media company that still has very low churn among subscribers. So if somebody, let's just play this out then, Dan, and forgive me because I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm being obtuse about it. If an Apple bought a Peloton, um, would we see this service on Apple TV? Is it you like that? I mean, or, or does it take Peloton and it, it sort of revamps the bikes and makes them white and all that stuff, sleek, and, and also um, puts their uh, you know, iPads on, on the machines? 
Well, so uh, the iPads on the machines, maybe, and, and I don't know what they would do about if it was Apple specifically about that integration. I don't think they would change necessarily the look. Think Apple, for example, bought Beats and, and they didn't make all the headphones white. I think there are white Beats headphones, <laughs> but they didn't completely change Beats. Um, so so I think you could see it. I think, would you see it on Apple TV? Probably. Uh, you know, just like if Netflix bought it, you'd probably see an integration there because Peloton, the, the one of the things McCarthy is trying to do is get more adoption of its app. You can technically get Peloton content without having its bike or without having its treadmill. And certainly putting it on Apple TV or, or a product like that would make sense. Do you think that uh, it has entered Barry McCarthy's mind that they don't need the hardware component or in some way they should separate that from the business and that they should just simply exist as a subscription-based service and I don't know what with the with the hardware, but that's all you really need. It's Well, it's partially all you need. It depends, you know, McCarthy continues to talk about the kind of the core fitness as the crown jewel. And part of that crown jewel, at least historically for Peloton, has been the community built around that. And, and part of that's on social media and on Facebook groups and things like that. But part of that is the interaction people have on the actual machines with kind of the leaderboards and things like that. I don't think he would give up the hardware because to be honest, the hardware is, even though obviously it's expensive, it is one of the differentiations between Peloton and all the other apps out there that do running classes and do yoga classes, et cetera. It, it is that physical device. What's your guess, Dan, quickly? In six months, Peloton will be independent, Peloton, bought, bought by whom? In six months, Peloton will have at least gotten a good buyout offer. Whether the company's willing to sell or not, I'm not sure, but I think someone's going to make a bid for it. All right, Dan, we'll see. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, despite the world being wide open again, cruise lines can't seem to catch a break. Shares in Norwegian falling more than 37% this year, but it is still outperforming its peers. What will it take for cruises to course correct? We'll get the headlines from Norwegian's analyst day aboard its newest ship, the Prima. That's next. The news on Peloton. Just moments ago, CNBC.com obtained an internal memo from Peloton CEO Barry McCarthy responding to the Wall Street Journal article we just discussed, saying the article creates the impression we have six months to live, which is at odds with the story we told in the state of the business. That's on me, and I apologize. So again, just to underscore what Dana just said, our, our guest, um, six more months to see if the turnaround is working, not six more months to live. We are seeing Peloton stock reclaim its highs in the session up by 5%. Um, let's get to one more thing before we go. Uh, meantime, switching gears, Norwegian Cruise Lines Investor Day. It is being held aboard the company's newest ship, Prima, which is currently docked just across the river in New York. Seema Modi has spoken to some of the attendees, joins us now with all the headlines. Seema. Melissa, CNBC has reviewed the investment deck presented to shareholders today in which Norwegian Cruise Line outlines an aggressive expansion plan. It currently has 29 ships in its portfolio with another five on order for delivery starting next year. The cruise giant also detailing its continued bet on the luxury consumer, saying it's got more market share than its competitors. It comes after Carnival released numbers that shocked Wall Street, sending the stock down about 22 percent on Friday uh, since then. You've seen many of these names come off their lows. But despite reiterating bookings that will improve in 2023, investors still seem more confident in land travel versus sea travel. Melissa Bank of America lodging analysts upon review of the latest bookings data for hotels, writing that there is a clear sign of accelerating corporate travel and a stable recovery for the industry. They're going as far as saying that this should set up for positive earnings revisions for the major hotels, despite all the investor 
skepticism and concerns about a recession forthcoming. Mel? Was there also, I mean, is there also this notion of pull forward of travel, Seema, and that's hurting the leisure-only areas like the cruises as opposed to the hotels, which have, as you mentioned, a diversity of customer coming in, the business, as well as the, the leisure traveler? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And plus, and plus pricing, too, despite some of the economic headwinds and concerns that people are delaying travel, you're still seeing pricing hold up very strong, Melissa, for the major hotels. For the cruise lines, it's been a slightly different story. Yeah. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi with a check on the cruise lines. And we do have a quick programming note. Norwegian CEO Frank Del Rio will join Jim Cramer on Mad Money tonight to discuss the state of cruising. That starts at 6 p.m. Eastern, and you will not want to miss that. Before Mad Money, I will see you tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern on Fast Money with your countdown to the jobs report. Joe Lavornia will join us to talk about that and much more. Meantime, I'll see you later. That does it for The Exchange. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.